quick review. We had the first session, which was really just an introduction to the idea. We've spent about seven sessions looking at the Old Testament and the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. That is God's people and God's place under God's rule. Uh, that's been the preeminent thought. Uh, we've spent a lot of time there, much more than we're going to spend in the New Testament, not only because it's bigger. I mean, two-thirds of the Bible is Old Testament, but also because I, I understand most Christians have not spent a lot of time back there. Uh, publishers and booksellers will, will sell you a New Testament with the Psalms and say, hey, carry this around. And I say, why would you carry a dagger when you have a sword? So, you, well, you all put it in your smartphone or you carry a little sword that has the same potency as a big one. Um, and so we spent a lot of time looking at the early chapters because much of what is said in the rest of the Bible you'll find in those early chapters of Genesis. And then we moved into the history, and then we moved into the prophets. We really haven't spent much time in the wisdom literature, uh, but that's well worth your reading. Uh, the idea, especially with the minor prophets, is we went through them because, again, most Christians do not read them. They say, minor? Why should I deal with a minor when I want to deal with the majors? And what's more major than just not just the prophets, but the Gospels and the New Testament? But as the old adage is, the New Testament is hidden in the old, and the old is revealed in the new. You do not understand the Old Testament until you know the new. You do not understand the new until you know the old. So you're really always working with that. Uh, now for the next few sessions we have, and probably the, the direction we're going to go is today we take a look at the Gospels. Um, we may have the next session on Acts, or it may be the Acts and the Epistles. I'm not going to go through each epistle, but I'll give you an idea of why they're there and what they're, what they're trying to say. And then the last class we're going to do is a whole study on the book of Revelation. In an hour and a half, I'm going to have you so convinced you know Revelation that I will be absolutely astounded that if you know Revelation. <laughs> there, yeah, it's, a, it's a beautiful book, but it is deep. It's tough. So today we're going to take a look at the Gospels, and I, we're going to begin with a passage from John that he wrote about his Gospel that could very well have been written about all four of them. John 20, beginning at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Some of the other Gospels record things that Jesus did that is not in the Gospel of John. It's one of the reasons we have four Gospels. But their whole point is, is that they were pushing toward that people would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. These are not simply nice biographies. They have a purpose, 
and that is to bring you face-to-face -face with Christ. Uh, for instance, in my own process of salvation, one of the things the Lord did was have me read from Matthew 1 all the way through to the end of John. And all of a sudden, I got this bigger picture of who Jesus is than I'd ever had before. And I saw him in the wonder. And I, I grew up in the church. I went to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, youth group, sat, in, sat on the third pew on the left-hand side right underneath the pulpit for uh, 18 years, you know, taught by a, a fine Bible teacher. But it wasn't until I hit the Gospels and saw Jesus face-to-face, uh, -face you know, metaphorically face-to-face, in those Gospels, and all of a sudden, the beauty of who he is jumped out at me. And that was part of the process that led me to the time of uh, my conversion, or uh, at least the time when I know that I, I expressed my faith in Christ. Because time of conversion is really tricky. I know you can be converted and have a whole period of time before you come to faith in Christ. Not quite evangelicalism. But that's the way the Spirit works. He changes you and all of a sudden you begin to realize all this stuff that you had heard before but never really accepted. And then there comes a day when it becomes real. And you commit your life to Christ. The conversion happened a long time before. Or it can be instantaneous. We like instantaneous because it makes great stories, and we're just story-loving people. What I want us to do today is what is near impossible. I want us to look at the Gospels as if we've never seen them before. I mean, it's like you, you can never step in the river into the river at the same time, because by the time you step, come out, step again, the river's already gone. So it's, it's difficult to do. You can't read something or see something without being a flashback to it whenever it is mentioned. Uh, yesterday, royal wedding. What do I think of? Princess Bride. Marriage. Marriages are coming together of two people. You know, they're, they're married. I'm going, if I were the, if I were the officiant, and I felt really crazy. I think I'd do that <laughs> just to get people to laugh. And then they'd throw me out. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you can't unremember it. But you look at them with, as if you've never read them before because then you see them with new eyes. Uh, and as you read through, you need to look at that. The Gospels are what was called bios. That is... It's an ancient biographical process. You were not going from birth to death and explaining everything in chronological order, which is the way we usually do biographies in our day and age. I finished the biography of Grant right from pre his family before his birth all the way up to his death. A little bit, tiny little bit about his family afterwards. Bios is a form in which you highlight events and teachings that grant the message you want people to hear. 
And it may not even be in chronological order, as I think we'll see as we go through that. Um, it simply brings out what you want the people to know. Now again, remember, we are dealing in an age where you didn't have books. You didn't have the printing press. The best you had was a scroll. But a scroll of any length was very laborious to copy. You spent a long time doing it. So you didn't even have many copies of the Old Testament. You had to memorize it. And then you had to rely upon your memory to deal with it. Now they spent a lot of time, primarily with the boys, drilling it into them so that they at least remember the Torah, if not the whole 39 books. But you didn't have something you could carry around, even in your pocket. So you, you, had, to, you had to look at it. And then you had to think about, in the Gospels, they're only giving you what they want you to know from their perspective. So they're also, they were scrolls. Uh, they were not, they were, you started at the beginning and you read, excuse me, you started here because it was Greek and therefore you started from the left and you went to the right. And you were meant to read through the scroll at one sitting. You didn't let your kids interrupt you. You did it at a time when you had the opportunity to do it if you read it at all. And even in the synagogue, they didn't necessarily take parts of it at a time. They read through major times because nobody had a copy. You, that's the only way you learned it and, and heard it. So, say, so let's turn to Mark 13, verse 5, you know, and we'll do one verse. No, they would read all these, these uh, the long passages. Um. The synoptics, which are the first three of the Gospels, and they're called synoptics because if you mold them together, you get a pretty accurate picture of the life of Christ. But you've got to put them all. So looking at it with one another. Now, because if you only look at one of them, you'll get a jaded view in the sense of focus on one thing. Um, but they're basically looking at the story of Jesus from the earth up. His human life, and therefore what does it mean? You get to John. John is a different kind of literature. It's, it's still a bios, but it, it looks at it from the heavens down. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke begin at, with the birth or the genealogy of, or the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew says, the beginning of the genealogies of Jesus. And son of son, son of son, son of son, son. And by the time you're halfway through, you're going to sleep. And you're wondering, what is important about that? Which we'll talk about. Um, Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And goes right into John the Baptist. Nothing about his birth. Luke tells you everything about his birth. From his relatives, Elizabeth and Zacharias, through his birth period, through his early ages. Um, and so John is looking, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right from the start, it starts in the eternity, eternality. 
in the beginning, think Genesis 1-1 was a word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the moment you say the word was God, you're into an eternal, eternal being. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled in our midst, this word, uh, the 14th verse. So, and therefore, and John has a different way in which he pinpoints who is Jesus. Synoptics, they're drama. From the very beginning, they want to pull you into the story. And they do it through drama in a variety of ways. For instance, if you look at, turn the page over, and you look at the outline of Matthew, you will see how he begins with the arrival and the preparation of the Messiah from his birth to his presentation to the baptism and the testing. And then you get into a combination of discourse and action. And this is how Mark Matthew wants to draw you in. You spend three, two, three chapters listening to Jesus preach. And I don't even think this is a whole sermon. I think this is a condensing into the important parts. So he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, or they shall whatever. And he probably went on and explained that. And he did that over and over again. But there's Matthew, and I think this helps us to understand part of how the Gospels were put together. Here's Matthew over in the corner. Because he was a tax collector, he knew how to write. So he pulls out his little scroll and his pen, and he begins to write this stuff down. It's not as if they went through three and a half years of ministry, and then all of a sudden at Pentecost say, oh, we got to write this stuff down. I mean, that's how I do my journal. Three months after something happens, i got to write that down. Now, I think, especially with uh, Mark and John, they were both successful businessmen. They knew how to write. So in the times when Jesus was teaching or afterwards when they were sitting around the campfire enjoying fish and looking for a good night's sleep, he pulls out a scroll and he writes down. On this day, Jesus took five loaves, two fishes, fed 5,000 people. And this is what he had to say. So when he comes to putting his book together, he, got, he has all these notes and he combines it and then underneath the auspices and the direction of the Holy Spirit, he writes out his gospel. You know, I, what I'm trying to, to do with you is to say it was not miraculous. It was a way most people normally work just overseen by the Spirit. Okay? Because I, I get people say, wow, how did they remember all that stuff after all those years? I can't remember my shopping list when I'm going to Myers." They say, no, no, they wrote it down. Like you ought to do with your shopping list. <laughs> okay? But what you see with Matthew is you have discourse number one and then the actions that go along with the discourse. Kingdom life for the disciples, and now you see the power of the Messiah to be able to live that life. Discourse to the mission of the Messiah, and then you see the opposition to that mission. He sends out 
he talks about his mission, sends out his disciples. Discourse 3, parables about the kingdom. And Matthew is one that has probably the most parables. And then you have the revealing of the Messiah. Who is he? And this is what the parables are meant to do. Discourse 4 is the fellowship of the Messiah. And then you have the uh, Jesus asserting his authority in the city, calling his people to him, and yet realizing they're rejecting him. And finally, the delay, the return, the judging. Uh, the, the chapters 24 that really throw people because he talks about the destruction of the temple. That's another one of those deep passages. Uh, and then you have the crucified Messiah, his resurrection and commissioning because of, uh, because of his being rejected by the leaders. Okay, So it's back and forth, back and forth. Teaching, action, teaching. So as if he's saying to us, well, the Gospels and the Christian life is not simply learning as much as you can. You've got to put it into practice. You learn, and then you practice. You learn, practice. Now, take a look at the Gospel of Mark, his outline. And I do want to thank Tim Keller for this, because Tim Keller wrote a book, The King and the Cross, which is his uh, teachings on the Mark, and this is just a great way to look at it. The first eight chapters, or eight and seven, uh, seven and eight, eight and a half, have to do with the King is coming. Then you go to Jesus and the cross because at 8.27, he starts heading to Jerusalem. You'll notice that the first part, the king is coming, everything's done up in Galilee. And then you go to Jerusalem. If you look down at the outline for Luke, you see the same thing. After his presentation and the preparation of Jesus for ministry, all Luke does is say, this is what he did up in Galilee. And then in 951, when he said, and now he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Everything happens down in Jerusalem. Well, that's not exactly the way it went, because if you look at John, and you look at his outline, what you see is Jesus was traveling all over the place. He started in Galilee, but he went down to Jerusalem for the festivals. He went up back to Galilee. He'd come through Samaria. Uh, he, as a good Jewish male, he had to be at the festivals three times a year. So for his three and a half years of ministry, he had to be there at least nine, ten, maybe eleven times. And he also went to some that were not required, such as Hanukkah, the festival of lights and dedication. So you see, he's back and forth and back and forth. Well, you never pick that up from Mark and Luke. You think he spent all his time up north, then he came down south. He didn't like the cold weather, so he came down. He, uh, he, he moved back and forth. But that's, that's them trying to draw you into their stories. For John, there's seven signs that Jesus did. Now, I wonder how he got the, the number seven. I wonder, did, did he just pull that out of air? Did he just kind of say, oh, I mean, I, I've got a whole lot of more stories I could tell, but why not 10? Why not 12? Not, why, not, why not 20? Why not do two scrolls? 
and give all these things. No, no. Seven is a number of perfection. It's in essence saying he did these seven signs. He's the perfect Messiah. And you see him working perfectly. And even the signs have a progression to them. He uh, begins by turning water into wine. Not grape juice. Some people actually think it's only grape juice. Nobody who's a uh, uh, the butler of the party would say, well, you served the bad wine and now we got the good grape juice. What? <laughs> no. You, you got the better wine when he turned water into wine. And you have a, a, a natural uh, sign like that. He heals an official son, a lame man. He turns bread and fish enough to feed 5,000. And then you see these kind of what, what you might call, quote, minor miracles only in, in, in the way in which they are. And then you get the miracle, he walks on water. And the, the disciples are absolutely frightened because they think he's a ghost. Man, have you ever tried to walk on water? I did for a half a step. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> in water no 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 yeah you, yeah you have to it's in the middle of a storm with the waves and the wind and the surf and the spray and and you're walking up and down and up and down well he could walk on water and then he simply says peace be still and it's still Okay. Uh, a blind man is healed, and then he begins to talk about light, being able to see. And finally, the last one, which is almost a precursor to his own coming event, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Just as he would raise himself from the dead, he raised Lazarus. And that, in and of itself, cause issues because when the people realized he'd raised a man from the dead they began to flock to him in greater numbers and the religious leaders go whoa this is not good in essence Rome is going to hear about that they're going to take it away from us they're going to take leadership away from us and we're going to have to go begging in essence use your little imaginations and, and all of that and therefore, they really are pushing to get rid of him. I always thought it was interesting that when Jesus was at the tomb and he called out, he called out, Lazarus, come forth. Because you all know if he just said, come forth, everybody would have been out. Now, that would have been a show. Uncle Charlie, you're back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where did you come from? Jesus raised me from the dead. Simply called out. But it was just for Lazarus to show that he could pick one person and raise him from the dead. As he would raise himself from the dead. Amazing. Uh, we usually, sometimes we think God raised Jesus from the dead. No, Scripture says he raised himself. The Holy Spirit helped as well. But he raised himself. So, you know, John is just pulling you in. To see who this person of Jesus is all, what he's about.
um, there are hints of what's going to come up. Uh, it, it, I don't know if you read murder mysteries or you see mysteries like Columbo and some of the shows like Walton, no, no, like Columbo. There are little hints of what is going to break the case. And you have to look for those hints. And those hints draw you in. Okay, in one Columbo, there's a, a, an Irishman who is part of the Irish Republican Army shipping guns over to Ireland. He likes his whiskey, but he takes his fingernail and he goes this far and no further. Which is not only a phrase from the Irish Republican Army, but he keeps, well, I guess he takes his ring and he puts it in. And you're going, what does that have to do with the story? Well, at the end, it's how they figured he was at the scene of the murder. Because the whiskey bottle had the marks of his ring thus far and no further. Well, come on. And you're going, wow. <laughs> See, that's what the Gospels are meant to do. Jesus begins his ministry and he gathers all these, these followers and there's a great crowd around him. And then all of a sudden he begins to say, well, the Son of Man is going to have to go up to Jerusalem. He will be beaten and put on trial by the leaders. And then he is going to be crucified. But on the third day, he's going to rise. And all the followers hear everything except that third day. See, but it's a hint. And three times it's said in a gospel. And they go, well, okay. I mean, this guy has been really good about being truthful. There must be something that's coming up. So when you get to the garden and the the courtyard and the trial and even Gethsemane, the cross, you begin to think to yourself, well, I've seen everything but the last one. And so when you hit the last chapter, you're going, Haha, yeah, he was right. And you've been drawn in. And throughout it all, there are hints. Throughout the Gospels, there are hints of what's going to take place after his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, he prepares his disciples. He calls them. He calls them to do two things. One, to be with him and to minister through him. They spend three and a half years walking right behind him or around him, listening to what he's teaching on the way. They spend three and a half years uh, going through a process of training. They watch Jesus do it. They do it with Jesus. He sends them out to do it. And then when they come back, they debrief. And finally, at his ascension, he says, okay, gentlemen, your turn. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, the power of God to accomplish it. But it's your turn to go out and do what I taught you to do. And to say and teach what I taught you to teach. And there's that hint that Acts 1 and 2 are not something poof out of thin air, but something Jesus has been preparing his people to do. Uh, also can mention they're deep. They seem like simple little stories, those parables. But remember why he uh, taught in parables. It's from Isaiah. 
Though speaking, they will not understand. Though hearing, they will not know. And so when you say, well, just like Jesus talked in parables, we ought to talk in parables. I, I say to him, yeah, but he didn't want them to understand what he was saying. Oh, it's only for his people to understand and to plummet the death of it. For instance, pearl of great price. Man goes searching and he finds a pearl of great price. And he sold everything he had to get this one pearl. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's the surface story. The deeper part is when you find the pearl called Jesus, you're willing to sell everything to have him and to keep him. See, And it goes even deeper than What's it mean to sell everything? Do I have to do as Jesus said? When the time comes, there will be parents who are against their children, children against their parents, in-laws against outlaws, family members who break up. He says, that's what it's going to cost you to be a disciple of mine or to take up your cross and bear it, forsaking all else in order to follow me. And then you realize that's a whole lot. I have to give up everything for him. Parable or the story of he calls a couple people to come and one says, oh, look, I just bought some cattle and I got to go inspect them. Uh, what kind of flimsy excuse is that? Who buys cattle without first looking at them? Okay. Help me go. I got to I got to go bury my father, which is not that his father just died. Says, I've got to wait around till my dad dies and then I can come to you. You know, it's those kind of things that he's, he's expecting of his disciples. And the more you get to it, the more you think about it, the deeper you can go with this. Uh, and this is especially true with the Gospel of John. I and the Father and one. I, the I am statements where the I am is he uses the name of God. I am the good door. Yahweh, the good door. I and the Father are one. Are you saying that you are equivalent to God? He never answers because he's, the answer is obvious. Yeah, that's what it means, doesn't it? Come on, do I need to pull out a thesaurus and work on it a different way? This is what it means. Um, and you'll see that. Uh, they, the three of them each provide a variety of insights according to the audience of the author. For instance, Matthew. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience um, because Matthew, well, they, are all, they were all Jewish, but Matthew was the one who was told, you are going to write to the Jews. He is trying to give the reason why we can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So he keeps quoting the Old Testament. A hundred times he quotes the Old Testament, either verbally or by inference. And in doing that, he's basically saying, this is your Messiah, and you missed him. And it was a book that was primarily used in synagogues or 
in Jerusalem. Uh, he never has to describe Jewish law or customs. The readers would know it. We have to go back and say, okay, what is the Feast of Booths? What's that mean? Why is it important? What is the Passover? Because that's not normal. It's, it's not like we know about Easter and Fourth of July and Memorial Day and things like that. Luke, or Mark is one who followed Peter around, partly because he got kicked out by Paul. You know the story, Paul, Barnabas, and Mark head out, and when they get to the foreign country, this is about as far as Mark has ever been away from Mama and his own company and his own people, and he chickens out and he runs home. And when Barnabas wants to take Mark with Paul the second time, Paul says, no way. And there was an argument. The thr thrust of that argument is you could hear them down three blocks from the house. This is a shouting match. And Mark is left. Now they're finally reconciled. But Mark stays with Peter. And Peter and Mark is probably with Peter. And so you have Peter, who also was a fisherman. He would have known writing. He could have written down things. He, Mark, writes at the either dictation or the stories that Peter gives. And his audience is primary Romans. People who love a king, who love power. Uh, the key word of Mark is immediately. The action goes boom, 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 boom. Just like Romans, like one, two, three, four. None of this pause and reflect. Just do it. Too bad Nike's a Greek word. <laughs> If he says, just do it. Just get it done. And so he writes to an audience that doesn't know the Old Testament, but knows power when they see it. Luke journeyed with Paul, uh, probably because he was a doctor and Paul needed a doctor. I mean, you look at how many times Paul got beat up and what he went through. And he talks about the thorn in the flesh, and he talks about his own weakness. He, he had a traveling physician. And because of that, I think Luke was there with him. And Luke is the one who, as a doctor, does a meticulous historical search. In their journeys, he probably sat down with Mary and said, what was it like when the angel came and talked to you? What did you say? What did the angels say? Couldn't do that with, say, Zacharias and Elizabeth and others, but put together the information. Uh, did it in somewhat of an orderly manner of what would take place. And he writes like a physician in detail. Uh, you get to know in, in the finer points. You know, Mark, when he writes, says, they went to the city. You know, it's kind of like when I talk. Just, just give you the basic facts. Luke goes, and this city was beautiful. It was gorgeous. You know, this is what happened in that city, and this is what we went to, and this is kind of like my wife when she talked. Now, take that off the, the uh, podcast. Now, but, you know, some people go into great detail. Well, Luke does that in his, in his writing. Um, and then you have John who, as I mentioned before, uh, wrote and to, in order to show that 
Jesus was God in the human flesh, and he signed and he put his gospel around that way. Uh, but all, ultimately, the uh, gospels lead you up to two events, the cross and the resurrection. Specifically the cross, because the gospels are what they say they are. They are good news. And they're not just good news about a very wonderful teacher and a marvelous human being called Jesus. They are the good news of how we are spared from the wrath of God and brought into the family of God to be learners and disciples and followers uh, through, through Christ. Um, and it, in, in essence, the gospel is not just for spiritual laws. The gospel is Jesus. And so that's what they're trying to show. They're trying to show Jesus in the fullness of, of who he is. Now, Acts is the book that follows. If, Acts, if the Gospels are the history of Jesus, Acts is the history of the early church. And it's, called, it's, it's given uh, a title of a legitimatizing document, a legitimatization document. That is, it explains why the church is the way it is, and it gives legitimacy to the church being, in essence, the new Israel. So the form of Christianity was new, but the faith of his was rooted in promises and commandments of Israel. So even there in Acts, you'll see them going back. Paul comes into a city, and part of what he does is he goes to the synagogue. And why are the synagogues there? It's because the exile, where the Jews were taken out of the promised land and spread throughout Babylonian Empire and lived there developed these synagogues and when they were there began to be outposts for the kingdom of God. Not by themselves, but when Paul went from city to city, he had a ready audience. And what did he do? Well, he didn't pull out his gospel of John and start preaching because it wasn't around. He pulled out the Old Testament. He said, let me show you by convincing proof that Jesus, who I represent, is the Messiah you've been looking for. No longer next year in Israel or next year in Jerusalem. He's already here. And that gave him then when normally wherever Paul went, a riot broke out. And it usually started with the Jews. Then he'd go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would have known a little bit about the Old Testament because there was a Jewish synagogue there. And so he could begin to relate. And Acts is simply a way of showing that the early church was what it was meant to be. Followers of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, to share the good news about Christ. Takes them all the way from the introduction that says, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. So Acts begins in Jerusalem with Pentecost. It moves into Judea and Samaria. Uh, in, uh, and then it finally goes outside of what we know as a promised land into all the known world. And by 60, about 64 A.D., 
we believe Acts was written. Christianity had already gotten up not only northern Africa, but all the way up to Britain. And that, and if we understand the Apostle Thomas, he got all the way over to India and may have also gotten across the Himalayas into uh, what we call Asia. So it's pretty much in the known world, at least for those people. Now, do not believe those stories that tell you that after his resurrection, before his ascension, in those 40 days, Jesus went to South America or he went to North America. There are people who, who teach that. And he talked to the Indians and uh, the people of South America. I said, no. He spent 40 days with his disciples rehashing what he had talked and making sure their notes that they were carrying around were accurate. Okay. There's an overview of those five books. Um, that's what it's meant. I put down here that um, the, the dates of the books, I think all of them were penned before 70 AD. 70 AD is watershed mark. And that's when you have the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And with that, you have the destruction of the old covenant of Israel. And with that, none of that's ever mentioned in any of the books. You have Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But if it had happened, it was such a momentous event uh, where the, the Christians even obeyed the teaching that Jesus gave in Mark 13. That when they were to see the army surrounding Jerusalem, they were to leave. And all the, Jews, all the Christians left Jerusalem before the Roman army encased it and then crushed it. It was such a momentous event because gone was the temple, gone was the political entity, gone was everything that the Old Testament stood for. It was like God was saying, I'm done. The gospel, my church, is now worldwide, and that's the way it's supposed to be. This is why I have difficult with people who want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. I say, why? What are you going to do there? Worship God? You can worship God anywhere. You're going to hold sacrifices, which is one of the reasons some of them want to rebuild. I said, why would you want to sacrifice animals when you have the sacrifice of Christ? That's just blasphemous. And yet there are Christians who point to that thing. No. The church is now the continuation. Um, and this is what the this is the gospel. Now I, I am a minority voice on the idea that the gospels were written before seventy AD. Most will take at least John and say it was written between eighty and one hundred AD. So if you read introductories and they tell you that, okay, that's the majority vote of voice of our day. But I think the evidence shows that they were all written before 70 AD. And I think even uh, Acts, if Acts was written in 64, which we all consider to be accurate, Luke was written before that because Acts is the second letter of Luke. 
and probably the Gospels were written maybe even within five to ten years of the life of Jesus. If Matthew was written in 40 AD, which some of us think, that's within seven, eight years of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And it was, it was close enough that people could read it or hear about it and say, yeah, that's what happened, because I was there. I saw the blind, the blind man leap and praise God in the temple. I saw Jesus bend over, spit on the ground, form that mud, put it on the eyes, or make, maybe make new eyes for the blind man. And I saw him all of a sudden be able to see. see. Uh, just like the um, rationale for the uh, resurrection. You know, if anyone could have produced the body, they would have. And that would kill the whole story. If anyone could have done anything like that, they would have. Well, it didn't happen. So, you have those four Gospels. And I gave you the, uh, the outlines for you to look at, to think about. You were supposed to do your own outline of John. If yours isn't like mine, that's fine. That's part of Bible study, is for you to make your outlines. Okay, any questions? We've got time for questions. I've got to stand up. This, this, I'm going to get a padded chair. That's all there is to it. You guys got padded pews. <laughs> yeah, why, why don't we hear or read almost anything? about the time when he was, say, 2 to about 30, except for that one event. Probably because that was material that they did not consider pertinent to their Gospels. Even Luke, all, all Luke does is say he grew in stature and wisdom and in favor with God and man. He says, well, that's enough. That's all. And a lot of the rest of it's left to your imagination. What was it like to be a teenage boy or Jesus to be a teenage boy and to go through the changes that take place? What was it like for him to have to to obey his parents, which was easy, easier for him than for us? What was it like to be his brother? That's the question I always want. That's my big brother and he's always right. I can't be right any time. Mama always loved him best. <laughs> no. <laughs> what was it like? Wasn't pertinent to the issue, what they wanted to write. Is there any information? I don't think we've ever found it. Remember, up until his ministry at about 30, in his baptism, he's an unknown. He's just a poor carpenter's, well, not poor, because they, they were well middle class, well, pretty well off. He was just a carpenter's kid who took over his father's business and made my plow and my stool and my bed. That's all he was. That's, that's what dumbfounded the Nazarene, Nazareth when Jesus went back and said, no, I'm the Messiah. And they go, hold it. Aren't you Joseph's son? Doesn't your mother live here? We knew you when you were this little kid. And they had trouble believing him. Okay. That's that's the best we know. We don't even know when his father died. We're pretty sure 
he was not alive because he's not mentioned. What were the circumstances? Uh, except for the, the scripture says he was raised in Nazareth. Sure. They would not travel like we do today. Um, yeah, there's, there are all sorts of books that have risen and, and stories like him going to the Himalayas. Books like uh, when Jesus was a teenager, he got upset at some of his friends and poofed, got rid of them. Or he took some dirt and fold, created it into a bird and went, let the, created a bird and let it fly. Those are apocryphal. We have no understanding. So you can't say one way or the other, but that's not in the character of Christ. To either get rid of his enemies or to build something that was not necessary. Okay. It's reasonable. Is there actual evidence? No, but it's reasonable. It's like, well, what's the theory of electricity? There are two or three of them. All of them are reasonable, but we don't know which one's which. Depends upon which professor talks and what class you're taking and how much of an A you want to get. You know, that's, it's reasonable. It's just not provable. Um, yeah, he could have cried at pain, but you're right. He never cursed his parents. Oh, would I love to have had a kid like that? No, <laughs> no. no. It, it, on the other side, it had to be tough to be Joseph and Mary and raise him. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? No, with whom you're working No, it's it's not it, the the idea that um, Jesus was an illegitimate child. Actually, there is a place in the New Testament, and I think it's in Luke, where, and I can't remember exactly where it is, where the people say that this is the son of Mary. They leave out Joseph, and it's almost a dig, like. He's only the son of Mary. Joseph had nothing to do with it. Not his father. His father had to be somebody else. There's that hint in in the uh, the way in which it's printed, and I wish I could remember where it is. See, yeah, and it's it's and that that was going on. Yeah, I mean, who believes in a virgin birth? We've never seen it. I haven't seen it since. 
I'm being facetious about who believes in a virgin birth. If one of my daughters came up to me and said, hey, Dad, I'm going to have a kid. I never had sex. I'd go, what? <laughs> Are you trying to pull the wool over my eyes? Who's the father? Okay. That's, and I think that's part of the stigma. And that's part of the, the grace of God taking Mary and Joseph out of Nazareth down to Bethlehem, to Egypt, and having a two-year period between her conception and their return to Nazareth. So, because uh, it doesn't say that when, when Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, she had the child that night. That's just our interpretation. It says when they were there. They could have been there two months. They could have been there two weeks, could have been there two hours. We don't know. But the sense is they were there. And there's the graciousness of that. Okay. What other questions? So in the Gospels, it references that Jesus was If knowing that Jesus had brothers and sisters and it never references his brothers and sisters or his sisters being told, is there any point of that? Well, even the verse you quote, go tell my brothers, which I think was a reference to the disciples, not his family. Okay, not his biological family. Go tell my followers that I have raised from the dead. Um, we know that his brothers and we assume the sisters believed after the resurrection. James, the patriarch of uh, Jerusalem, not uh, James, the disciple who was killed early. James was one of the heads of the Jerusalem church. That was a brother. In fact, the book of James is written by his brother. Uh, there are others who probably worked with the church just we're, like most of us, never make the history books. That's okay. We do our work. That's all. We'll never have even a footnote in any history book. It's okay. That's good. Um, but so I, we, we probably, it's reasonable to believe, yeah, his brothers and sisters look back and say, yeah, he was. We know some did. Some may not have. Again, that's question 450,000 when I get to heaven. What happened to your family? <laughs> it's, it's not high on my list. So Maybe high on your list. Okay, any, any other questions? Okay, let's tie this together with what we've been talking about from the very beginning of this course, the kingdom of God. And I want to show you how the... Gospels pick up on the idea of the kingdom of God. That it's God's place with God's people under God's rule for extending his kingdom. That's the kind of one sentence uh, summary that we've used. 
So you look on the page, it starts the theme, the kingdom of God. It's God's place. We've gone from paradise to the tabernacle to the temple to the tabernacle of Jesus. Again, John 1.14, and he dwelt among us. The word dwelt means he tabernacle. He pitched his tent. The word, the eternal God, pitched his tent in the midst of his people. Image of the tabernacle. That Jesus embodied God and God pitched his tent. So, I, th I think, uh, yeah, I said it before. Ezekiel looks at God returning to the temple. Never happened, as far as we know, after the second temple was built. Not when the Herodian temple expanded that second temple. Until Jesus is brought to the temple to be circumcised. And the offering for Mary is done. And then all of a sudden, God did come into his temple in the form of a little baby. God entered the temple uh, when Jesus came and chased out the money changers twice. He came, he was in his temple. Just nobody recognized him. He didn't come flowery. Uh, Mark 1, 14 to 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And how? why could he say the kingdom of God is at hand? It's present. You're in the place of God's kingdom. Well, you were in the place of the king. And wherever the king is, there's a kingdom. Um, and I already talked about John 1.14. Other passages from John, especially like John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, he says. I am the place through which you must go. He, earlier on he says, I am the door. You must enter the sheepfold through me. Uh, he's showing himself to be God's place. Um, and then I have a side note on mine of Mark 13, where Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. And basically he's saying, we're going to get rid of the old place of God, and all of a sudden we have a new place. And that translates into that wherever Jesus is, there's the place of God. And Jesus says to his disciples, I will come and dwell with you. I and my Father will come and dwell with you. We will send our Holy Spirit to dwell with you. So now individually, we are God's place. And then Paul expands upon that. And when he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's a plural you. That when you all get together, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are God's place here on earth. So, then we're God's people from Adam through Abraham unto David and from, and from the sons of David. Uh, some people really rebel about reading genealogies. Why does Matthew start with that silly genealogy? You know, and basically you look through it and you see all the great figures of the Old Testament culminating to say Jesus is in the line of Abraham. Not only Abraham, but David. 
And then it shows the dirty laundry. Because you have four women in there. The wife of Uriah, not even giving her name. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, a non-Jew. Rahab, who was a harlot, who came to faith. And finally, Mary, who was considered, because people don't believe the, the immaculate conception. No, no, excuse me, that's not right. The incarnation, the uh, virgin birth would be considered a loose woman. Okay, so you, you get even in that beginning genealogy the idea that Jesus comes from a line of Abraham, but even within that line are some real scoundrels, not just the women, but the men. David, whose wife, who had the wife of Uriah. Well, you think right back to Second uh, Samuel and what he did, not only to, to Bathsheba, but Uriah, Nathan, and the country. And you realize out of this horrible background comes the Messiah. Okay. Luke does the same thing, but he takes it all the way back to Adam because he's talking to a Grecian uh, audience. And he wants to show, we go all the way back to the first person, Adam. Of course, you know, we all do. We all go back to Noah. Somewhere along the line, it changed, but Noah is the father of us as well as Adam. Um, and now the people move from a physical lineage, Abraham, to all tribes and tongues. Uses the word nations, and the word, way we think of nations is boundaries, certain areas, you know, protect our borders, and something that we really have um, produced on our own. I mean, part of the problem of the Middle East is they divided up countries into boundaries that had all sorts of different people groups in it. Nations in the New Testament has more to do with people groups, those of a common background or language and society. Um, and all of a sudden, the people are not just of one physical line, but all who are children of God, whether you came from a Gentile or a Jewish background. That's the people group. So you have uh, the disciples, the people called out. You have the people as learners. Uh, John 6, 66 to 71, where you have Jesus saying some very difficult things. I am the bread of life. You have to eat me. You have to drink my blood. I mean, if I stood up and said that about myself, you guys would really ought to get up and run out. <laughs> okay? And that's about what the people said. How, how, how do we eat his body and drink his blood? And they began to leave. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're gonna, I need all the, this boy needs all the prayers he can get. It's like that little kid that was messing up in a, in a uh, restaurant, and finally his dad got real tired of it. And he said, son, we're going outside. 
picks him up, puts him on his shoulder, begins to walk up. And the guy, the little boy walks up and pipes out and says, somebody pray for this little boy. Because <laughs> yeah, he, he knew he was in trouble. So, somebody pray for this little boy. But you, you have Jesus saying, everyone's leaving and say, are you two going to leave us? And the disciples say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They were learning during that whole process, just as we are called to learn during the whole process. Uh, then you have the sacrifice, the call to carry one's own cross, an instrument of death. You know, the cross is not simply a beautiful piece of jewelry. It is, if you wanted the modern equivalent, you put an electric chair on a chain and hang it around your neck. That's the idea. Uh, that's the sacrifice, and they're called to serve in all of that. And that's God's people. And then you move to God's reign. So it comes from a garden to a land, a people in that land, to the furthest ends of the earth. And all of that, God is ruling. God ruled in the garden. On the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. I give you everything else. You are my vice regent. You are the one who is called to take care of this world that I have created. Anything except that one tree. The Ten Commandments are nothing more than God giving to his people the way in which they ought to live. And all of the law of the uh, first five books is just saying, this is how you live. This is how you live underneath my authority. You don't do this, and you do this. If you, you know, that's the idea of covenant. I have conquered you. I set the standards. You have to obey. If you disobey, this will happen. If you obey, this is what happens. And he puts his signature on it. Um, God's reign works through his disciples. Uh, Jesus builds his kingdom by destroying his enemy's kingdom. Luke 11 passage where they say, well, Jesus has been casting out demons and say, well, he's got to be filled with Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan. And Jesus looks at him, how can that be? How can a, how can a kingdom stand if it's divided? And if I cast out demons by myself, what about your own children who are doing it. But the idea of casting out demons is he takes one great enemy that's far superior to us and he he just easily deals with them. I mean, it's like go and they go. None of this taking, taking hours of, of pleading and you never hear Jesus say, would you please go? <laughs> He commands and they leave. And he gives the same authority to his disciples. Um, he's destroying the enemy kingdom. And finally, with the cross, he destroys the last great enemy, uh, the cross and resurrection. He destroys our last great enemy, death itself. And God is reigning. Pull this out through the, the, gospel, the, the gospel of Luke called Acts. Yeah. Pull this out through Acts, and what you basically see is God's kingdom, his reign, expanding. 
And if you add on Acts 29, which is the rest of the history of the church, you see God's reign being dispersed throughout almost, every, well, all parts of the world, but almost to all tribes and nations. And wherever God's reign has gone, the society has been better. Why do we have colleges and universities and hospitals? Why do we have institutions for those who have uh, handicaps? Why do we have most of what we have? It's because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, has first been there through his people and has made a, a dramatic difference. And finally, that moves into God's kingdom. Uh, Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate is asking him, uh, are you a king? He says, yes, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is another dimension. If I wanted to, I could call down 10,000s of angels. If one angel can kill 180,000 Assyrians, 10,000 angels could take care of the population of the world without any problem. And he says, that's not my kingdom. My reign is of a different dimension. You know. And so Pilate had Jesus killed. He stood as a judge to Jesus, but Jesus is going to judge Pilate. The ultimate reversal of what takes place. And finally, the commission to bring the kingdom to the whole world. While you are going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching to, to, deserve, to observe all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age or to the end of the world, depending how you want to translate it. See, this is in, in one way the culmination of all that we've been studying through the Old Testament, putting together God's place, God's uh, rule, God's kingdom, everything that we've been putting together in this, into the Gospels. And that's what they ultimately uh, show us. See, So you take a long time to study the Old Testament in order that you can see it in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels. Now, when we get to the epistles, who are not the apostles' wives. A little, little child once said that. I think that little child was me. No, it wasn't me. When you get to the epistles, you're getting, simply saying, okay, this is then how we live in light of extending the kingdom. Okay? And I think the homework for next, week, next time is basically looking at the epistles, right? Come on, I put that together two days ago. Do you expect me to remember? Come on. What do you think I am, superhuman? <laughs> no. Excuse me? I should have put a note here. I just, I'm, I'm going off the top of my head, which is sometimes very dangerous. Um... Now, we're going to take a look at the epistles and see why they're there and what they have to say. Not, not going into deep into any one of them, but to give you an idea why they're there and their basic message. Okay.
Any questions? We're going to get you out early. Unless you have a boatload of questions. Okay. None? Let's pray. Lord, there's so much material. It, it will take us a whole lifetime of reading and studying and meditating, of internalizing. We simply touch the surface, but you, by your Holy Spirit, will take us deeper as we look at these four books. We're thankful for how influential they've been in our lives to let us see the person of your Son in who he is, what he's done for us, what he tells us to do, how we are to live. We are thankful that you indeed will help us to look at him, maybe in a different way, but also in that deeper way. And therefore, O oh Lord, we entrust you and we trust ourselves to the Holy Spirit to do his work within us as we think, as we meditate on them. May they always be precious to us since they show to us the precious Savior who you have graciously given to us. And may we learn from them day in and day out. For we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.